Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Ma'adukulu ala Rasulihi al-Kareem amma ba'ad. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings from the Prophet, peace be upon him. And we are going through Ma'arif al-Qur'an's commentary on Surah al-Kahf. And so this is the beginning. Okay, fire away. So a little bit of introduction about Surah al-Kahf. Um, so a lot of narrations state that if you memorize the first and the last 10 verses of the surah, then um, you're offered protection from the jal. Um, and if you recite the first and last 10 surahs, then um, you have a light that stretches from your feet to your head. And if you recite uh, the whole surah, then the light is equivalent from the earth to the sky. And this light is, um, it serves to protect you on the day of judgment. And any sins that are committed between the Fridays where you recite um, Surah Al-Kahf are forgiven. And another aspect of the Surah that really speaks to its importance is that the whole Surah was um, revealed all at once um, in the presence of 70,000 angels. Um, so the reason why the, the Surah was revealed, um, there's a little bit of backstory behind it. So the Quraysh in Mecca were concerned about like the rising influence of the Prophet and so they sent some men to speak to some Jewish scholars in Medina to see if they had any information about the Prophet um, So these men told the Quraysh to ask the Prophet um, three questions. The first question about um, the people who left their city. The second question about people of the person who traveled from the east to the west across the earth. And the third question about ruh or the soul and what it is. Um, so these men, they came back to Mecca and they asked the Prophet um, these three questions. And the Prophet answered that he would give them an answer to these questions the next day. But he forgot to say, inshallah. So um, the next day, the Quraysh came to him and asked the same questions. And um, the Prophet hadn't received a wahi by then. So um, he said he didn't have an answer. And this sort of went on for 15 days. And within those 15 days, the Quraysh began taunting the Prophet them because he didn't have an answer. And after those 15 days, um, Angel Jibreel came to the Prophet with the wahi, and he reminded the Prophet them that um, if you intend to do something, then you should say, inshallah. Um, so in the first few ayahs of Surah Al-Gaf, um, First, um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, um, or the ayahs are praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for sending down the Quran um, with no crookedness. And the word that's used here is iwaj. Um, so in the ayat, it says, uh, So there is no distortion um, in the Quran. Um, and the Quran is completely full of eloquence and knowledge and wisdom. And after the word iwaj um, comes the word qayyima, which um, is very similar to the word mustaqim, which means to be straight. Um, and this, this serves two purposes. First, to reinforce that there is no crookedness in the Quran. And um, second, to give the sense of a caretaker, custodian, or protector. So um, essentially, the Quran has no deficiency and it serves to keep others upright. Um, and then in verse seven, um, it says, um, So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, 
Indeed, we have created what is on the earth an adornment. So the word zina means adornment. And um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to every uh, life form and creation on this earth as an adornment. So even um, things that we consider to be harmful, they have a purpose in this universe, even if we don't see it as having a purpose. Um, and then when looking at ayat 9 and 12, here uh, we have the introduction of the story of the people of the cave. Um, so the Ashab al-Gahf. Um, so the word Gahf uh, refers to a large and mountainous cave um, as opposed to Ghar, which is a smaller cave. Um, and also the word Raqim is used, which um, may have the the definition of inscription or mountain or valley, depending on scholars. Um, uh, one, one of the ayat has um, these words, which means, uh, so we veiled their ears. So here, um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about um, the people of the cave you know, who fell asleep in the cave and they were in a deep sleep. So the significance of this ayah says that um, their, their ears were veiled and typically in a deep sleep, um, people can't hear um, and they don't respond to sound as opposed to a light sleep where people can still um, hear sounds in their environment. So this is just to emphasize that um, these people were in a deep sleep. Um, so there's also a debate about um, the terminology about the Ashab al-Raqim um, being the same as Ashab al-Kahf. Um, some scholars say that the, the phrase Ashab al-Raqim um, refers to the three people who were stuck in a cave um, and one by one each of them um, were basically you know telling Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you know I did this good deed so, so if it was um, you know with the intention of pleasing you oh Allah then please you know let us return safe from this cave and so the rock that was sort of blocking the the exit slowly moved as each of the person each of the the people in the cave um talked about their good deeds so there's a little bit of um debate there with the terminology um another thing to mention about these ayat is that there's a lot of um, historical and geographical um details of the story that are left out um and sort of the purpose of that is because um these details aren't important to understand the lesson um, from the story of the people of the cave. And this is actually a common theme in the Quran where some historical details are left out because they don't really serve um, a purpose in like the larger lesson that we can derive from the stories. Um, another common theme, um, especially among uh, righteous people is um, taking shelter in caves from or against oppression. So if um, righteous people aren't able to uh, worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in safety in their towns, then they usually, you know, leave those towns and they seek shelter in caves. So this is one of the common themes um, in the Quran. Um, some scholars also debate um, the location of the, the kahf or the cave. Um, 
but again, this is one of those um, details that isn't really necessary um, to know in order to um, derive lessons from the story. Um, so a little bit more about the Al-Sahab al-Kahf. Um, they were among the descendants of kings who were idol worshippers, and their town um, was very um, heavily uh, populated with people who were also idol, idol worshippers. And so um, they would regularly participate in festivals where they would worship inanimate objects. Um, and during one of these festivals, um, there were some young men who decided that this is wrong and they didn't want to partake in this. So they slowly distanced themselves away from these people. And one by one, all of them ended up um, sitting under the same tree. Um, and at this time, they didn't, each of them didn't know each other. Um, and they were hesitant to speak to each other uh, about why they were sitting under that tree because they were afraid that um, word would get back to the king and the king would um, would punish them in some way because you know he was a cruel king and he um, wanted people, forced people to worship the idols. And so at first they were hesitant, but um, they slowly started uh, speaking to each other and they all realized that they, have this, they had the same beliefs that they knew that idol worshiping was wrong and they knew that there was only one true God and he was the only one who was uh, worthy of worship. Um, so after speaking to each other, um, they set up a place of worship, but eventually the people of the town, they, um, they found out and someone informed the king. And so the king um, asked to speak to them and he asked them about their beliefs. Um, so the men um, or the young men um, told them that they didn't believe in idol worshiping and they believed in only one true God who should be worshiped. And they told the king to, they invited him to believe in what they believe. Um, so this angered the king. He didn't like what, they, what he heard and he threatened um, punishment on them, but he delayed the punishment a little bit. Um, and in this time, these young men, they, they ended up fleeing the town and they sought refuge in a cave. Um, and that's where they fell asleep. And then they woke up about, about 300 years later. Um, and during this time, the king was not a mushrik like the king before. Um, and then these men eventually returned to the cave and that's where um, they passed away. And then moving on to ayat 13 through 16. Um, these ayat um, talk about um, the fact that these men um, took refuge in the cave and their, their belief was not wavered at any point, um, even when the king had uh, basically threatened punishment on them. Um, they continually denounced shirk. Um, and then we have the reinforcement of the theme of seeking refuge in a cave. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that um, he will have mercy on anyone who um, has to do this. Um, so a little bit about the terminology in these ayat. Um, the word fitya is used to describe the young men. Um, and it's, it's significant that these um, men were fairly young because in young age, it is easier to um, sort of adopt newer beliefs and, and than it is um, to 
do the same thing at old age. Um, another phrase that's significant um, is which means we made firm their hearts. So um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that in the face of danger, um, even with the question of life and death, um, with the king's punishment, um, these men were brave and their their hearts, in their hearts they knew that um, they had to stay uh, strong with their belief. Um, and then again, we have the, the phrase to, to seek refuge in the cave. And this is the way of the prophets um, and righteous people who are trying to sort of get away from um, persecution. Okay, very good. Excellent work, mashallah. So uh, a couple of points. Uh, all this was, was, was outstanding. And so uh, a couple of questions or thoughts to think about. Uh, let's go back to the beginning here. So, so Surah Al-Kahf, uh, uh, as you pointed out, begins by mentioning that there's no crooked in the, uh, crookedness in this, you know, and uh, what would you say, like, I mean, so the Quran seems to make that point over and over again. You know, that this is not the work of a madman, this is not a work of poetry, this is not the work of a soothsayer, so forth and so on. Uh, it's one thing if it mentions it once. What do you think is the point or the benefit of mentioning it over and over again? What are some insights we can uh, learn from that, from the fact that it does that? What do you think? I think it's a, an issue of like emphasis. Like if you keep emphasizing something over and over again, then um, people are more likely to believe it, maybe. And I think the fact that the Prophet ﷺ was illiterate, um, it was sort of a reassurance that, um, like, this isn't the work of a human. This is the work of, um, you know, like a supreme being. Yeah, absolutely. And then also we can perhaps get an insight just about something about human nature, that when we speak of the Quran as a reminder uh, one, it's a reminder of, of course, the, the, the primary truths of Allah Ta'ala, prophethood, peace be upon him, day of judgment, so forth and so on. And then moving through time, uh, even if we know something's true, sometimes we just need a reminder of like a reinforcement in that moment, you know. Because yeah. um, how many times, think about how many times in the Quran, uh, you know, we speak of Allah being most merciful and such. And sometimes in a given moment, we know it, but we just need to hear it again. Right, and yeah. And that's even one of the functions of dhikr in itself. You know, like when you're saying the name of Allah, Allah, Akbar, Allah, Akbar, Allah, Akbar. At one level, you're praising Allah. And at another level, you're reminding yourself, right? And mm -hmm. and so even when you're making a dua, you're speaking to Allah, oh Allah, please give me X, Y, Z. But you're also speaking to yourself. And and it's also, you're, you're sort of re-implanting in your mind and you're thinking, this is how how to do things or the reality is supposed to operate. And so in its essence, ab above all else, when the Quran is speaking of us as a reminder, it's telling us here is how reality works. And thus here then is how to navigate reality. And it's then written according to human nature. And it includes both human nature in terms of imagination because that's a part of all of us as well as just how humans are 
You know, these are all parts of you. Like in our modern contemporary culture, we don't really take imagination all that seriously, right? We don't take mm -hmm. dreams all that seriously, but we definitely don't take imagination all that seriously. Like all the things that are in your head mm -hmm. and social media and media bombards all of that. Um, but that's uh, almost like a sacred part of your existence, just like your brain, your heart, your kidneys, et cetera. So is your imagination. And so the Quran is addressing that. And then it's also addressing here's how just humans, humans uh, behave. And, and so over and over again, it says Alhamdulillah, but it's also a reminder and a way for us to remind ourselves. And yet now having said that, who would you say is the first audience of the Quran? What do you think? Um, probably the Prophet Yeah, so this is, so the Quran always is speaking to him first. And it could be that it's giving him uh, reinforcement. It seems like there's two schools you know, like, you know, we all know the story of, of the first revelations. And it seems like there's actually two schools. The story that we're commonly taught out here is he didn't know he's going to be a prophet. Right? People all around him were noticing miraculous things as he's growing up. And even he's seeing rocks or saying salam to him and such. Uh, but he didn't know he was a prophet. That's one school. That's the one we tend to teach here. Another school seems to be that he knew all along that he's the prophet. He didn't know when he was going to be coming. And, and, and so when the moment begins of what he, it's on the one hand, it's a shocking experience where he feels like he's losing his mind. On the other hand, and it doesn't contradict the first reading that it's such an overwhelming experience. He's going into shock. And, and so, so when Allah is saying these things on the one hand, it could be reinforcing him uh, by just reminding him, okay, you're not lost here. Or it could just be reinforcing him just, you know, um, uh, in a way we all need reinforcements. Yeah, so it's almost like one of the sunnahs of the prophet we think of as the things that he does. Another way to think of the sunnahs is the things that he received too. Is perhaps he didn't need any of these reminders, but it's a sunnah of Allah to him. And so it's a sentiment that it's also for us too. Uh, and so straightforward book warning of, of severe punishment. Okay, who's the second audience then of the of the Quran? What did you say? Um, Just thinking of all that you know about the deen and history and everything. Maybe the Sahaba? Yeah, it would be it would be the Sahaba or the people of Arabia in general. Mm -hmm. And so Sahaba within that, and then once the Sahaba become Muslim, it's almost like yeah, they're like a special category of, of receiving revelation. And so then within that, we also have the different Sahaba that are understanding the Quran. So there's, there's probably about a dozen and a half, give or take, ayahs that are called Umari ayahs. You know what those are? No. Those are ayahs where Umar uh, figured something out and then Wahi confirmed it. Okay. Like we should do X, Y, Z, we don't have any Wahi on it. And then at some point later, the Prophet actually received Wahi confirming what he is saying, right? And so, yeah, the first audience is the prophet. Because the second would be the whole people of Arabia with special emphasis. Uh, you can even say special emphasis both on the Sahaba as well as the Kafirs too, right? Because so much of this mm -hmm. is, you know, even here is 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 about the Kafirs, uh, but they are for a long time too clueless to to take any benefit from it. Later, many of them do become Muslim. You know, good for them and good for all of us. Uh, what do you take from the fact that any any thoughts? that here in this first uh, uh, ruku, um, 
it's also mentioning that Allah has, you know, although the how horrendous it is that they've saying they're saying that Allah has taken a son. Any thoughts about that? Of all the things that could have been said, you know, doesn't really talk about shirk in the common way of idol worshippers, but mm -hmm. here it talks about Allah taking a son. Um, it's probably talking about like the Christians who believe in like the idea of the Trinity and um yeah their their ideology yeah so there's that at one level that you know from within christianity is uh christianity is monotheist right for them father son mm -hmm. holy ghost are one from our perspective that's not monotheist right our monotheism mm -hmm. is what we call almost radical monotheism compared to the monotheism of christianity mm -hmm. and so in terms of textbook belief for us to claim that allah has a son uh is horrendous and at different points of the Quran, it's also uh, an insult to Allah. He doesn't need a son. And uh, in, in the same way, it's horrendous in our tradition to say he has a son. It's horrendous in Christianity to say he doesn't. Right? And so these mm -hmm. are just two, two systems of belief. And this could relate to matters at the end of time, too. Right? Because when we look at the behaviors of in the claims of Al-Masih al-Dajjal, Right, he's claiming mm -hmm. to be Masih, and he's effectively claiming to be God too. Right, I have the power to give life and death and all that stuff, and so it could be some hint about things that are going to go on at that time. And then also, you know, when we have these young people who are rejecting the king, this is also speaking of an outlook that is pre-secularism. So in today's secular society, it's almost like nobody cares what you believe. You know, you can mm -hmm. be in America, and today you're Muslim, tomorrow you're Christian, day after that, you believe in Scientology, no one cares. What do they care about? What does the government care about in terms of America? They don't care as much what you believe. What do they believe? What do they require? Um, Whatever. I don't know. Well, I mean, they require basically you got to follow the laws, and you got to, that includes when it's time to pay your taxes, you got to pay your taxes. You cannot officially revolt against the government, although what we saw earlier this month even raises that as a question. You know? mm -hmm. And But here, you'll find many passages in the Quran where there's, where there's a conflict between a king, and it's like the people are saying, we're not going to follow the king, we're going to follow Allah, because the king is demanding absolute submission. So the king is sort of taking on the role of being God. And, and so, so in these eras, the similar conversation that Ibrahim has in Surah Al-Baqarah, where, you know, the king says, I can give life and death, and so forth and so on. But what's built into there, and Allah knows best, is that Ibrahim is saying, I don't have to obey you over Allah. And I'm not going to obey you over Allah. If it doesn't contradict Allah, that's one thing. And, and so that's also sort of what these young people are saying here. There's a parallel here uh, in terms of their relationship with King and what we're seeing in the story of Ibrahim and Islam, you know, and and so that's also taking place here. And then let's see other points here for our purposes. Um, um, well, we've made the earth an adornment there, and you did talk about the the benefit and the importance of, of reading at least the first ten, last ten. Yeah, what do you think of this point where 
Um, you have the people of the cave and the people of Raqim. And like, how do you feel reading that? Okay, well, we think this is this and that's that. We think these are the, the young people into the cave and we think these are the, uh, the other people, the three people. How do you feel when, you, when it seems like people are not sure? What do you think? Um, I don't think those details matter because they're not really, like if you don't know, then it's not like detracting from the story itself. Yeah, and this is what you will find throughout the whole process of interpretation, that if it's something that matters, often you're going to find a whole lot more unanimity in opinions. So you're not going to find someone who comes like, you're not going to find an opinion, okay, there's more than one God, right? Um, and if someone claims that, they're going to be immediately excluded, or that there's a prophet after the prophet, right? There are people who claim that, mm -hmm. but then they get, they get immediately excluded, and then in terms of what is fard, in terms of actions, if it's fard in the Hanafi school, for example, it's effectively saying all of the other schools uh, agree that you mm -hmm. have to do it. If it's wajib in the Hanafi school, then Hanafis are saying you have to do it, but the proofs are not as strong as calling it fard. And so in another school, it might be sunnah. And so there you find a whole lot less variance of interpretations on the things that matter. And what you'd be surprised is so much of the stories of our tradition are matters of majority opinion, minority opinion. So I mentioned just a moment ago that we all know the first story of Iqra and such. That's mm -hmm. majority opinion. I mean, that's pretty much almost unanim unanimously taught today that even he went to the cave, Jibreel Islam appears. It's not even unanimity opinion that Jibreel Islam appeared in the form of a human. Right, mm -hmm. it could just be light, and this light enveloped and hugged the Prophet peace be upon him. But some are of the opinion that the first revelation might be Surah Mudathir or Muzammil or something along those lines, and and so and so it becomes less important on what is the primary issue. Everyone's being united in the fact that I have to face Allah Taala. So then the fundamental question is: Do I need to know this? or success with Allah Ta'ala. And most of these stories are, yeah, it's beneficial, but if it's things that I need to know, then you're gonna find more unanimity. Unanimity, I don't necessarily mean it's one opinion. It could be four opinions, but it's not gonna be like 20 opinions. It's not gonna be like 50 opinions. And, and so, yeah, and so such is the case with these stories, like is it referring to these people or those people? So uh, I also feel that when it's referring to two different populations, it gives us more diversity mm -hmm. of develop, derive insights from story of the people of the cave are people who went into the cave um, to escape from persecution and religious corruption. The story of the other, the three people in the cave were people who were in the cave, uh, I think because of weather, but then because of their faith, they're trying to get out of the cave, which I think is, 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 uh, is pretty fascinating. Let's see what else here. And also, it's also a very important point that these are young people that are, that are going to the cave because, you know, we, we and I focus on this a lot with all y'all because you're all undergrads, that uh, uh, young people uh, who are serving Allah are given special shade with Allah Ta'ala on the Day of Judgment uh, because it's so easy not to be serious in that time of your life. You know, It's so easy to care about these things when you're, when you're much older, but when people care about these things when you're younger, it's, it's, uh, it's especially wonderful, inshallah, before, before Allah Ta'ala. 
that I think is also a very, very big part, uh, I know one of the more important parts of the story versus how many were there, how many years were there, and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. So anything else big that I want to focus on, everything else that you touched on very, very well, mashallah. Yeah, and then there's, you know, so one belief is that this is Petra in mm -hmm. Jordan. Yeah, maybe, may not be. Um, and then, yeah, okay, so so the Quraysh, they're trying to figure out how to delegitimize the Prophet, peace be upon him. Mm -hmm. and, and the story never ceases to fascinate me. I mean, you know, think about how many times you've gone through the Sirah, how many times have I gone through the Sirah. So the Quraysh grew up with the Prophet, peace be upon him. They recognize him as a Sadiq al Amin. They recognize that the Prophet could not have come up with the Quran, that a human could not have come up with the Quran. They just don't want to accept it. And they're willing to go all the way to Medina and say, hey, can you give us something you know, against him? Right? And, and so whether or not, uh, so a lot of times in our modern readings, especially of the Jews of the story of the prophets, and we often read them as often just you know, people who are just innately Ill, uh, evil. I don't think that's that sound reading. Yeah, but here it seems in this case of the story, it said, okay, well, if he's a real prophet, then he can answer these questions. They'll ask him these questions. And then, of course, in the Quran, we have the whole thing, inshallah. But there, the prophet, peace be upon had an experience potentially similar to Fatrat al Wahi. Are you familiar with that? No. So, so the prophet receives his first revelation, you know, Iqra and such, mm -hmm. then the beginning of Muzammil and Muddafir and such. And, and may have also received al-Fatiha shortly after this. Then there's a period where he doesn't receive anything anymore. And, and so the question is, okay, did I do something wrong? Did I upset the purpose of Allah? Did Allah abandon me? And so that the period of the absence of wahi, fatrat al-wahi, goes on at least, give or take, for like six months. I mean, try to even comprehend uh, what's going on with the Prophet. He just has this huge experience, and then a few more, and then silence. And then he receives what? You know, what surah? He receives surah al-duha, right? And part of the beginning of surah al-duha is, your Lord has not forsaken you, nor has he forgotten you. He's not angry with you or anything. And so here, it's a small dosage of something similar. Because here, he's looking for an answer, and he's not getting it. And then... You know, he gets to nudge and say, inshallah. And so this is almost like a small version of the, the same type of experience. Yeah, then this question, like, are they still alive or not? But um, that part is, is, is it's secondary. And again, if we already believe that revelations can come from the sky, then it's not a big far-fetched to believe that um, you have these people who are asleep for 300 years. Mm -hmm. This was also similar to the response that Abu Bakr gave when the prophet Peter came back from the night journey and the companion said, you can believe what your friend is saying. And he says, well, if he says it's true, so what do you say? And so they explained the night journey and the pro and Abu Bakr said, the Quran is more amazing than the night journey. Okay, cool. Did you have any other thoughts or questions about any of this reflections, anything? Um, no, I think that was it. Okay, cool. Did you find the exercise to be of benefit? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Sure. Let me stop the recording so we can be more frank.